This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Tonight is a dream of mine, and uh, I've wanted to talk to this brother for so long. I watch him, of course, um, on social media, as I say. And uh, and then I get to talk to Dr. Carr every Saturday. And and it, there's almost like a symbiotic relationship, you know, between what you do, Michael, and what we're doing on Saturdays. And you're watching, and it's just, you know, I, I feel like this is where we, we must be at this time, at a, as a time, at a time such as this. So I want to just, again, thank you for coming in. I do feel like I know you too. Uh, I'm fascinated by you. I, I believe I read somewhere that you were homeschooled. Yeah, I was homeschooled until I was 12 years old. And uh, I didn't find out until recently. I just thought, you know, my mom was kind of uh, hippie-ish, kind of one of an old Black Panther. And I always thought that. And then um, I was writing about it uh, last year. And I asked her about it, like, kind of a formal interview, which I'd never done with her. And she told me that she was conducting a, an experiment with my sisters and I. And she said a quote that I will never forget. She said she didn't think a black person's humanity can be fully realized in the presence of whiteness. And I never forgot that quote. And so, yeah, I was homeschooled, which kind of like set the stage for my life and kind of this journey of self-learning I always say it was years before I really ever learned anything in a classroom right so yeah it, it was uh, kind of the template for my childhood Dr. Carr um, talks about jailbreaking the university but I think we're doing more than just jailbreaking the university and even for me sitting with him sitting literally at his feet every Saturday I'm reminded that Everything that I've been taught has always been through the lens of white folk. And my parents, my, my parents were not Black Panthers, but, you know, they were pretty, my father at least was very socially conscious. My mother raised in Augusta, Georgia, had some of that, you know, indoctrination coming through. Um, but my dad was really like that that guy. And even going to school, I, I you know, I'm just now unlearning some things thanks to Dr. Carr. So when I see somebody like you who's completely free, or you 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 have like this untethered to this narrative view of the world. I want that for everybody. So, um, Dr. Carr, like talk to that a, a little bit as we move forward. Because today, tomorrow, the next day, this is about building the the country, the world that we want to live in. Because we're global citizens, and it's going to have to start with us educating ourselves. Dr. Carr, take it off of mute because this is an important conversation. <laughs> am I? Am I? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I'm a loopy. It's been like, first of all, thank you for not um, for not abandoning your post. I definitely understand what our assistant, Dr. Washington, just said about self-care. At the same time, uh, we're breathing 24 hours a day. So thank you for breathing and then getting up before dawn because you're the hero of everybody who gets up before dawn at this point. So they, they, you know, the only drawback is people are going to probably expect you to keep doing this. So I'll say that number one. And then number two, it's, it's good to hear uh, our brother, brother Mike, because brother Michael Harriet, you know, it's been a, well, it's been a minute since we saw each other physically, but I think uh, that was the first time we got a chance to meet physically. I've been a reader for a long time and a fan. And uh, that was a conversation actually with school teachers, ironically, among others, policymakers, if I remember, 
around uh, the question of how do we educate our, our children. So listening to you, reading you, and thank you also for being on the wall. I caught you uh, talking to Trevor Noah as this thing was beginning to unfold. You know, what should we black, what do you expect from black people for the election? But, you know, it's, it's ironic. Earlier today, I was, list, I was in a conversation actually with a brother, uh, Bernie Gallman, who is a doctor in Columbia, South Carolina, about that race and what was going on down with Jamie Harrison. His grandfather and father were members of the Palmetto Education Association, which was the black school teachers during segregation. And, of course, you know, Mike, you know, you're a native son of South Carolina. So it was very interesting, to, and I'm writing down what your mother said. Yeah, we were not well, educated. In it's interesting of, of all the people in the world that you would bring up, you bring up Dr. Gallman because he was the best friend of my mother's brother, James Harris, <laughs> an ancestor now. But uh, the last time I was in South Carolina was at uh, that uncle's uh, son's wedding. And I sat at the table with Dr. Gallman. And, oh, uh, oh, I, you know, I grew up hearing about Dr. Gallman and Cleveland Sellers, who was also uh, uh, one of my uh, uncle's best friends. And so it's just interesting of all the names that you bring up out of the world, that that was the connection that you made. Well, as Professor Hunter would say, it ain't no mistakes. And we, we all three of us know that the ancestors don't make any mistakes. That is that is mm-hmm. remarkable, brother. Which which leads me then to suspect that they were all members of the Black Educators of South Carolina. That was one of the most powerful Black organizations in the country, the Palmetto, one of the eleven Black Teachers Associations throughout the South. These cats did not play, and there wasn't a white person in their uh, in their children's classroom. That's the backbone upon which everything rests. So your mom. It may have been an experiment in this moment. Of course, we know the Panthers had liberation schools and freedom schools. And, but at the same time, man, brother, you're just continuing a tradition that's deep in your, in your family. That's in your bloodline, brother, to be free. <laughs> and to be free specifically in terms of education. And, of course, for everybody listening and everybody who reads you, read, everybody who checks your website out, we see what we become when we are free to be fully human in the world. Yeah, our conversations ain't never been oriented around white people. It's been oriented around our humanity and what were the obstacles and how the hell do we get rid of them? So no, Karen, I, mean, I, I too, Karen, am uh, and thrilled to just be able to be in a, in a space for a minute and listen to this brother right here who is waging word war, which in some ways yes. is, is the most difficult war to wage. <laughs> so yeah, thank you. Today, you, you're, you broke down Cuba. And it's in, and again, you know, we run out as a nation half cock over half truths, right? And we, we have opinions that are rooted in things that we don't know fully. So, you know, again, what, what Carr's, Dr. Carr is saying about you waging war with words is so, so important. Are you stunned at how ignorant people are, Michael Harriet? Well, I guess, you know, I, I learned a long time ago that really smart people are always stunned at how much they don't know. And so I'm always stunned at how much there is for me to learn, not necessarily how much other people don't learn. But I think, like, just as human beings, 
we all assume sometimes that everyone knows the things that we know, right? And, you know, I, I'm a person who whenever someone like you and Dr. Carr drop a nugget, I am there to pick it up. I remember one like of all of the conversations I've listened to between you guys. I remember just in passing one guy, one time you guys said something about the Negro Fort. And I was like, well, yeah, what, wait, what, what's the Negro Fort? And you guys kept going. Like, you just mentioned it in passing. And for a week, I was obsessed with just reading and buying books about the Negro Fort in St. Augustine and in Florida and how, you know, and then it took me on a journey to like, oh, wait, we were here long before 1619, which I knew, but, you know, that education, that, that nugget that you dropped, it spurred a journey that took me into so many directions. It took me to Esteban. It took, you know, it took me into so many places. So I am always stunned by how much I don't know and how much there is for me to know about myself and about this world and about our people that we haven't been taught. And it's and, and the crazy thing about it to me is always that it's not really hidden that well, right? It's It's out there for us to find out if we just want to know, but the thing is that we are taught this, the education system, I learned that, you know, I ended up being subjected to, teaches us to learn things for the sake of regurgitating them and not how to find things, how to find information and how to learn things, right? They teach us to memorize our timetables. I remember once, when I was like six, seven years old, and my mom used to teach vacation Bible school during the summer. And I remember once we were at vacation Bible school, and she got so mad at me because I didn't know my timetables. And she told me, you better learn your timetables. And I went home and learned them, but because I never went to a school, I didn't know you're just supposed to stop at 12. So when I went to school, like, and we used to have this math test, test every Friday, and the teacher would get mad at me because I didn't know my show my work. And I was like, wait, why does everybody stop at 12? Like, after 12, you got to show your work? That doesn't make any sense to me. And nobody could answer that question. Like, why do we just know the timetables to 12? Why don't everybody know their 14 times tables or their 17 times tables, right? Why do we stop at 12? And so, like, it's just those little things in the education system that we never question. You know, I've, I've just taught to question everything, like, to go on the journey and not for the sake of the journey and not for the sake of regurgitating the information. Nobody might ever ask you, but you know. As you're talking about your mom, and and we're here, a.m., 4, 19 a.m. Eastern Time with Michael Harriet, Dr. Greg Carr, Africana Carr. You can follow him on Twitter, um, head of the Africana Studies Department at Howard University. 866-801-8255 is the number if you want to join us in conversation. I'm thinking about how we reimagine education for us uh, because COVID has told us that it doesn't work. When we went to remote learning People are lost and the school system doesn't work. And you want to know why I know it doesn't work because we don't know enough as adults. Right. 
the the notion of regurgitation i tell my students all the time and i'm supposed to teach this morning you know uh you've been taught to regurgitate not to think not to not to critically think so this class you're going to have trouble if you have not you know develop that muscle you're going to develop that muscle because i don't give you tests it's not a rote memorization you can't learn these things just by uh reading a book and a passage and repeating it what was your mother's process uh as a way of a blueprint for us and i think everybody should have different blueprints for their kids because every kid is different but what was her process for teaching you and your sisters well her process was uh first of all just over the years in my family, we had a room in the middle of our house. We called it the middle room. That was essentially a library. It was just lined with books. And people in my family who didn't even live in my in the house that my grandfather built just dumped their books there. Right. So when she would wake up in the morning, she would give us a list. She would give us a list of words that we had to look up. And then we had to read something from before we were born, right? And then we had to read a certain number of pages in the World Book Encyclopedia. Didn't matter what uh, volume it was or what the subject was. And then when she came home, we without the book, we had to tell her about it, right? So... So you absorb the information not to regurgitate like the dates and the facts and the names, but I learned how to absorb the information and then retell it as a story. And that's kind of like one of the things I think people like about my read because it's always a story, right? You put it in a narrative and you connect the dots. And when you do that, right, you can't, when you learn history that way, you can't help but to connect the dots from, you know, not just, you know, chronologically, but you might have to skip 200 years and say, oh, that thing that happened 150 years ago is why it is the way we were now. Oh, when they were writing the Constitution and the slave owners in Virginia were afraid that this new federal army would spur these black people in this army to come down south and free the slaves. So they said, hey, you got to write this amendment uh, to the Constitution. And that's why we have a Bill of Rights, because they made Alexander Hamilton and and James Madison write that you cannot abridge the right of the people to be arms because they were scared the slaves were going to revolt. Oh, so that's why we have not only just the Bill of Rights, but the Second Amendment. Oh, that's why that thing is the way it is now. And that the reason for that is the reason why there were so many slave revolts. And the reason there were so many slave revolts, oh, God, you got to go back and, and find out in Africa why we have this perception that, oh, people were just uh, just selling us to white people and, and they're telling us that, oh, your people enslaved you. Oh, no, they didn't know that this kind of slavery, this color-based slavery didn't exist in other places. They had no idea of the concept of owning people. So that's why it existed. And so you connect those dots by telling the story and you learn about history and you learn also 
when people tell you other parts of history, oh, you're missing some dots, bro. You, you just going to skip over that old dot? <laughs> and so you learn to question everything people tell you, and you learn how to absorb history in the way that your particular brain works. Everybody doesn't do it that way. My sisters didn't even do it that way. Dr. Carr, when you're listening to this, and we're, we're on with Michael Harriet and Dr. Gray Carr, uh, this AM on Urban View, is this duplicatable? If people are listening right now and they have children or they, they themselves, because I feel like, you know, this is not an, you know, the other problem we have in education is that we have people in grades as if we all learn at the same pace, you know, that all six-year-olds should know this and all seven-year-olds should know that when there could be a Michael Harriet who can know all of this, you know, and his sister may take a different path. And, you know, what, what do you, what do you say when you hear this? Is this duplicatable? Is this something that people can do? We can all do? Yeah, until we were rudely erupt- interrupted, that's the way we did it. <laughs> I mean, in fact, this is, man, I'm listening and just sitting and basking and absorbing and in such, not only awe, but it's the type of awe that isn't from surprise. Although I got to say parenthetically, uh, Brother Harriet, your gifts that emerge in that type of uh, the rhythm are truly remarkable. So there is a, there is an all factor in there, but the, but also there's an all factor, and this is for everybody listening in recognizing that this is the way human beings are best educated. There are no limits. I love it. The fact that your mother said, "Oh, you got to learn your times tables." There's a discipline there to be sure, but you didn't recognize that there was an outer limit, so you just kept expanding and are still expanding because that's now the rhythm. It's like listening to a musician. Uh, can listen to a musician who's learned the basic uh, scales and then is turned loose to continue to expand. And so and also parenthetically, of course, Vacation Bible School, as, as we all know, comes out of coming out of enslavement. That was the space where they were most likely to leave us alone. So we turned Vacation Bi- uh, Sunday School, really, beginning. And then, of course, Vacation Bible School, black folk know that know that that was independent black education where our ancestors and elders were being subversive. So all these people making money writing all these big books about subversive education. and t- yeah, Come on now, the American Negro, was that, don't, don't you think that's what our ancestors were doing? But, you know, it reminded me, Dr. Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois gave a talk at his alma mater back in 1933 called The Field and Function of a Negro College. And he starts the, to the talk by saying, once upon a time, some 4,000 miles east of this place, I saw functioning a perfect system of education. He said, I was in West Africa. I went out, and under a tree, there were some adults and some children in a circle. <laughs> and he said, it followed the art of teaching young people to learn about how what they were learning applied to life. So, Mike, listen to you talk about that dots uh that dots metaphor. First of all, you're a master of metaphor, brother. So, and you make and you put it where people can understand it. Really, that basic thing that all teachers are supposed to learn helps students connect what they don't know to what they know. And so, that ability to keep expanding, no limits, connect those dots. It's, it's like listening to a musician learn how they played, and then you, and then when you put it finally, when you put a young person like that in a system that is designed by other people or for other purposes, sometimes both, mm. I don't need them to know everything. I just need them to know this right here because we're projecting that in 15 years, we're going to need 15 computer programmers. We need those people to work in this factory. So therefore, let's back map into the first grade. So they don't need to know all that. Next year, we'll teach them. When you do that, children start dropping out. 
Children start getting frustrated. Children are looking at you like, wait, you, I got the sense you're not really helping me. And Du Bois talked about that, too. In fact, in fact, I'll let me just. 1960 in North Carolina, he gave a talk to some school teachers at Johnson C. Smith called uh, Whither Now and Why, just before he and his wife Shirley left for Africa and ain't come back. He said, this is what's going to happen when, it, when the schools integrate. Our children are start going to start getting rowdy. They're not going to learn any Negro history. You're going to disappear. And so he said, unless we make the decision, he said, the laws are a problem, but those laws are going to change. And when those laws change, we're going to have to then address the real issue, and that's race and culture. So, Mike, your mom jailbreaked you, jailbroke you and your sibling, and, and used a model that we've been doing since the beginning of time. Maybe some folks should, should have been able to peek in on her and compensate her for that perfect system of education she, she raised y'all Come on. Come on. Dr. Gray Carr, Michael Harriet. So what happened that sent you to school, Michael Harriet, at age 12 to, to white people's school? Uh, well, I wanted, I guess when you grow up and you watch TV and you see uh, the images of school, I, I always wanted to go to school, right? Like, I felt like I was missing out on, you know, all my friends went to school, everybody around me went to school. And so I I just felt like I was missing out. So I would, we would, my sisters and I always wanted to go to school. And in when when I was twelve, she finally relented. I think her her she didn't want us to be so isolated because we lived in an all black neighborhood. So you know, not, it wasn't just the education system. I was really just educated. I mean, isolated from whiteness in reality, right? And so, I, I guess she wanted us to be kind of acclimated to the world because there were you know, things that were left out of my, you know what, they weren't, left, when I think about it, they weren't left out of my development. It was things that everybody else did that I didn't get to do or didn't know about, right? Like, I didn't know about raising your hand when you wanted to speak, right? So I had to learn that, right? And I had to learn, oh, when I want to use the bathroom, I got to ask someone to go to the bathroom or, you know, things like that. I, it took me probably until I was a senior in high school before I regularly could remember to write my name at the end of at the top of the paper, right? And I I just my te- I would get zeros because I would turn in my homework, but I would forget to write my name. I would also get zeros because like if the teacher assigned us twenty math problems, I just learned instinctively like oh the hardest ones are at the end, so if I just do the five ones at the end she'll understand that I know what she's trying to teach me, right? Instead of doing it for an hour, doing 20 math problems, I would get in trouble for that. So, you know, I had to learn how to acclimate to a regiment of not just education, but the way, like, because what they teach in school is not just how, what the things that they want you to know, but how, how to, to behave in how this to behave. system. Right. Like to do things just because you're asked to do them. Right. Like you got to do all 20 problems. It doesn't matter if you know how to do this. You got to show your work when you do your 17 times tables because I don't know what the work looks like, but you got to show your work. So, you know, I think she knew instinctively or, you know, outwardly that she had to acclimate us to this system that 
existed in this world that we were eventually going to be a part of one way or the other. I have a thousand questions for you. We have to go to break. When we come back, and I, I thank you for sticking around. I want I want both uh, both of you to put into perspective where we are right now in history and the, and, the, and the backdrop of what we're looking at with this election. And you know, I I think education is foundational, which is why we're having this conversation. But what other things must we have in our toolbox to not just survive this period? Because this is the period to jailbreak everything. This is the period to get to the other side of this and finally sit in our right seat. 866-801-8255. I invite you guys to join us in the conversation. The great Michael Harriet, the great Dr. Greg Carr is here. It's the Karen Hunter Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm going to play the music I like. <laughs> it's 4.37 in the morning, Eastern Time. And I'm here. I'm feeling like, man, how did I get to be so blessed to sit here with Michael Harriet and Dr. Gray Carr at the same time talking this talk about what we can do, what we must do, what we have done through the lens of, of the stories, man. Um, I'm contemplating. I'm a little jealous, Michael Harriet, that you got to be your full, whole self at such a young age, because it's so important. You know, our kids get beat down and destroyed before they even have a, a shot, suspended, made to feel like they are not smart, you know, sitting in the corner, all of those things. You're right, you know, like the, the conditioning. And so by the time we become sentient beings, like adults, they, the work has already been done. And you came in like, what is, what, I gotta, I gotta pee. I gotta tell you, I, I'm a grown, I'm a person. Like, I, my body's telling me I need to do something, but I got to ask you for permission. What kind of slavery? You know, it was anyway. Um, so I'm I'm sitting here thanking you, thanking both of you for being here today. Oh, you're muted. Okay, is, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Is that I, 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 I know childhood friends, and I remember when I started going to school and then they put me in this little gifted and talented thing, and it was just all white kids, right? And I always think about, oh, those kids weren't any smarter than the people I played with before I started going to school. And I, even to this day, right, I know kids who went to school, graduated from high school, started working in a factory, or, and they are way smarter, I know, because I, I've known them all their lives, than like the doctors and the lawyers and the kids who just parents, they were doctors and lawyers, but they were white, so they got a chance to continue that instead of being held back and just being assumed that they weren't intelligent just because of the color of their skin. I think this election, which has had a record turnout, record number of people voted for a racist tyrant, and a record number of people voted for Joe Biden as well, um, is an opportunity for us. Uh, and I want both of you to speak to this, Dr. Carr, as, as w- what is the biggest opportunity we have right now during this chaos to to break through? Mm. I said to recognize the power we've always had, 
and to recognize how we've used that power at every opportunity. In other words, um, this white-on-white violence that we just witnessed, that we're still witnessing, it was only close enough for Biden-Harris to get over because black folk and brown folk went out and voted in record numbers. We are the ones who are going to drag them across the finish line, and not because we're patriots. This ain't got nothing to do. This is no different than that brown-faced version of Alexander Hamilton. We didn't do it because we're patriotic. We were protecting our interests. So the first thing I would say is to recognize our power and to recognize we've always used it in our self-interest. So people are looking at television like, oh, this is a bad one. What did I do? There is no we. There ain't never been no we in this country. And we have always understood that. So we did what was in our best interest. And in this moment, when y'all fighting out of the White House, we're going to use every last one of you politicians as a tool to jailbreak ourselves like we always have. And somehow since that we've kind of lost track of the fact that that's why we get into this thing. We, we're, we're not at your service. In fact, Mike, what you did it, when your mom, when you went to school, uh, the, the segregated educators, when they then went in and the history books say, oh, they integrated in Little Rock Nine. The black school teachers called it outergration because the black children left their schools and went and helped those other people learn how to be human, and that wasn't even the reason they were doing it. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, that's that's what I would think. We have an opportunity to remember all that stuff and use it. Michael, yeah, I think this is an opportunity for America to, you know, reimagine what it means to have a. Uh, just an equitable society, right? And the first thing you do, they, and they know this, right? When we talk talk about the Great Depression, how to get up after the Great Depression? They say, you know how we can get out of this? All we got to do is just take the lowest people in society and give them a firm foundation, an economic foundation, right? Educational foundation, and then we'll have this thing called a middle class, right? And all we have to do is just give them that little spark, that economic spark, that educational spark, and then they'll be good for five, six generations, right? If they get a home, and then they can have a, a place to stay, and then they can get an education, and they, these homes can be – they can imagine their own school systems because they – own their own community and they can reimagine and control their school system and then they can build generational wealth and generations of an education system. That's why you see white people go to the same schools that their grandparents went to and their great-grandparents went to because they owned those schools, right? You know, people, public schools, right? But their taxes paid for that and that was because of the New Deal. Now, black people were excluded, but we know where the people in our society now who need this economic spark live. They live amongst black people, right? That's, I mean, if, if, if America just took its black citizens and gave them an economic boost, it could last for generations. And it wouldn't just help black people because they didn't do it to help white families. It would help America. Where do you think we're going to spend these dollars? Where do you think, you know, why do you think that you have to put money into what they call Title IX schools? Because you left those people out of the New Deal and you still trying to make up that gap. Right? So it's not just a thing to help black people. Nah, we, you can help. America 
by giving black people economic equity, right? And the thing is, right, it ain't like, I hate to use the word give, because right, because when you said it, it made me it made me wince. Yeah. To be honest with you, I was about to right. come back it's with what that. What was stolen from us? Like uh, you know, we talk about reparations, and I and I always argue that we talk about reparations and sin incinerate on slavery, but we can't forget about all of those years where black people were working and paying taxes, and they were taking our wealth and redistributing it to white people. When you talk about Brown versus Board of Education, you got to remember that started in South Carolina, right? Come on, brother. It started in a little town in South Carolina where they were, and they always talk about the little kids were going to the school and they had to, to go across a river to get to school. And sometimes some drown, right? But what they always Wait, leave pause, pause. That, they had to cross a river to go to school? Yeah. So in, um, so in, in Briggs, Versus Elliot in, in South Carolina. It was in this little town, right? And the white, black kids had to cross a river to go to school. And then when they got to school, they had to get gather wood and build a fire in their classrooms. Meanwhile, the white kids didn't have to do any of this because they had 33 school buses in this one school district and refused to give one to the black kids. And that made the parents angry and they filed a suit with the NAACP that eventually became quote was folded into this thing called Brown versus Board of Education. But this was the first case, right? Now when you think about that, right, every when they tell that story, all people always think, oh, these poor little black kids, but they forget to tell you that these kids weren't poor because that little town was right outside of this uh this big paper factory. So the black people were middle-class black people who were paying the same taxes. The black unemployment rate, I looked this up in the census for that little town, was, was less than the white unemployment rate. So they were paying more taxes. And the government was taking their money and giving it to white people. So it, when I talk about reparations, you can't, first of all, I'm always careful not to say giving us reparations. That's our money that y'all took from us for years and years and years. And the other thing I am careful to say is that it is not y'all money. That's ours, right? And so you're not giving it to to help black people. You're giving money that you've taken from black people and gave it to white people. Every white person in America benefited from the taxes that black people paid. And they went to the schools with it. They built colleges with it. There were 17 state colleges in South Carolina and zero black state-supported schools in South Carolina until they built uh, South Carolina State University with uh, land-grant money after the uh, Civil War. But they had to build that, right? They had to build that or either let black people go to school with their kids. And you know they weren't going to do that, right? So that's why they built those land-grant black colleges because they found a loophole loophole where they could continue Jim Crow without letting their kids go to school with black kids. And yet we we sit here in 2020 and three-fourths of white folks, so-called white folks, 75% of people who identify as white, still segregate, have no relationship with black people. They live in all-white communities and go to all-white schools and they have all-white uh, churches and that's by design that's on purpose 
is this the place for us? I, I, I believe that, um, and I've been saying this, uh, that the Civil War was not won by the North, that the South still is fighting it. And we are still in the midst. We're still the commodity in between. And we still, in many ways, are the backbone of this country. Our trillion-plus dollars support the economy. You look at the stock market raging. Most of us are not in it, but we are participants with our dollars with bolstering these companies, mostly these tech companies, AT&T, over-indexed black people. You know, and I'm not just singling them out, but we over-index in all of these telecom companies in terms of our participation in, in buying them and putting money in the in those pockets. And yet we have very little to, to show for it as a community. The wealth gap gets bigger and bigger. Maybe the opportunity is to jailbreak everything and break away from this notion that this country, you know, being a patriot, what does that really mean? in a nation, in a land, Sharpton talked about this in his book that I, I worked on with him. You know, how do you call black people unpatriotic when we fought for rights overseas for people and then to come home and not have those rights? And we did it in World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam. We keep going and fighting for rights and fighting for this country when we have to come home and, you know, not experience any of that, right? So it's just interesting uh, maybe that's part of the conversation, too. Is this the place for us? And I'm not talking about Garvey back to Africa, but, like, how do we stay here under these conditions and, and not look someplace else? Yeah, I, I, I always think of it as, like, well, first of all, anywhere we live, we're going to have to make it uh, acceptable to our means, right, whether it's Africa or another country or creating a country. And I always remind people that, like, when they, you know, desegregated America or passed the laws that allowed desegregation, they didn't tell us we had to live around white people or be around white people. All it gave us the opportunity to do is to have access to the things that white people had that we were paying for, too, right? So, you know, there's nothing that say I got to be around white people all the time. They just said, look. All the stuff that you've been paying for, the public schools and the public, you know, community centers and the water fountains and the stores, like you have a right to that too. You don't have to be around those white people. And I think that's like whenever I hear the argument about, like, you know, there's an argument where people say that segregation was, uh, desegregation was the worst thing that happened to black people. No, we had, like, I didn't. I grew up, I wasn't around white people, right? We, I grew up in a town and a city that was desegregated, but I wasn't around white people because we didn't have to be, right? I don't, I, mean, I, don't, I don't ever feel the need to be around white people. And not because I you know, dislike white people or, or anything. It is like I like being around black people. I love it. And, I, you know, if I can create something, a space for myself where I can be around people and things that I love, I don't have to just extend myself into whiteness for the sake of being around white people. So, so you know, I, I'd like to disabuse people of the notion that like segregation or desegregation meant that we had to be around white people. Nah, in any place that I go, I'm going to try to make it my own. So, America is as much mine as it is theirs. I put as much blood, sweat, and tears, or probably more than any white people, any white person in America. So um, I'm here, 
Uh, I might go somewhere. I might not. But while I'm here, it's going to be mine as much as it is theirs. And I am going to create a space for me that is peaceful and and beneficial to me and my family, whether white people like it or not. And it doesn't have to include. I don't like. I don't see a need when I'm creating this space. When we are creating the space for black people, like I don't understand what it, why anyone would imagine like you have to reach out or like specifically include white people. Like it's just people, right? Like right. we, they don't want to live around us. And I mean, I don't feel the need to extend myself to ingratiate them. Doc, take us home, Dr. Carr. No, I'm listening and just, um, our proximity to white people has been because white people needed us in certain roles. South Carolina is a perfect example. You read uh, Catherine Frankie's book, Repair, on reparations, right during that Civil War. And, of course, Mike, you know this like the back of your hand. It's your place, man. Beaufort, South Carolina, the Sea Islands, where Seth McClark and them came out and uh, Ketzer did the citizenship education program out of the islands. You know, on those plantations, African people were told by the union, okay, if y'all work this land and help to get this cotton in and help fund the war, war effort, we'll give you the land. And after it was over, they sold the land out from under the feet of those black people. And then the people who came in said, wait a minute, Negroes, y'all can't leave. We need labor. So segregation was really about can we keep blacks in proximity to us but keep them separate? And in that space, as you said, we still continue to educate ourselves. And so, you know, looking at the political map now, looking at the Negroes in Detroit and Lansing and Flint, they're going to pull, they put Michigan in the blue column, looking at Milwaukee, they did the same thing in Wisconsin, looking at Philly and Pittsburgh, they're going to flip uh, Pennsylvania, and looking at Georgia, where they're counting as we're talking, and it's going to be those Atlanta, Fulton County, and the adjacent county that might turn Georgia blue. So when you look at CNN, John King pointing at his map, or Steve Kanowski on MSNN, y'all put that map down. This ain't got nothing to, America is cosplay. It is political cosplay. And then we go home and take our costumes off. We fought in every war in this country. But guess what? We also fought against this country with the British, and we ran away. Maroons, our objective is freedom. If i got to put this uniform on, this is cosplay. I know y'all thinking, you know, Nicole Hans-Jones, and my friend, our friend Nicole, she might disagree. At that point, we're going to go page for page, book for book. You show me where my, your father and my father, both veterans, were waving that flag because they loved it so much. That's cosplay. And so, Mike, finally, man, when you wrote last November, this piece where you took Pete, Pete Buttigieg out, you said Pete Buttigieg is a lying MF, you started, this is a master story, Taylor Kent. I love, that's a jolly right there. That brother is blood. You started, you said $7,322. And then the Brick versus Elliot Pete, no question. Every time I come to Columbia, I see Ed Dwight's magnificent sculpture on the State House lawn. It's got Briggs versus Elliot there. But you talked about having to cross your own dish to go to school, and then you contrasted it with Pete Buttigieg, whose parents have been educators at Notre Dame for damn near 30 years. He said, don't be lying on my people. No, 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 no. So you act like you know about us. You don't know nothing about And, and to his credit, he came to talk to you. But it started with, I'm going to take you back to my place because you think you know me. All you see is the costume I'm wearing. So we don't have to go back anywhere. I agree. Because we brought that Africa with us, and it's what has sustained us. Oh, ah, this we, we you and I and Mike, we have to keep talking. Michael Harriet, we have to keep these these meetings going. We have to keep these circles of education going. 
this is our lifeblood. And I want to thank you, Michael Harriet, for what you do with The Root and everything else. Michael Harriet, follow him. We tweet out his information. And Dr. Carr, I'll see you in them Saturday streets, brother, in class with Dr. Carr, <laughs> Africana Carr. You can follow him as well. 